Tate Moss with an E, it is very good to meet you and even better to get the chance to interview you for 20 Questions With. You are the author of, by my count, 12 fiction books, four non-fiction books and three plays. You are also the founder in 1996 of the Women's Prize for Fiction. It used to be known as the Orange Prize, I think. And the book that you've just brought out that's just hitting shops now is called The Ghost Ship. It's the third in a four-part series, but can be read as a stand alone. You're an immensely important figure not just in women's literature but in literature you are multi-award winning for all sorts of things you're an OBE as well and it's a great treat to ask you the questions I'm about to ask you my (laughs) first is just this because you're a full-time carer you look after your mother-in-law who is Rosie and she's known as Granny Rosie, I think, locally. And she went viral in the early stages of the pandemic because she used to entertain your street, I think, by playing the piano at the age then of 89. She's now in her 90s. How on earth do you manage to fit it all in? You, you're uh-huh. writing, you're organising. I think you might even do a bit of teaching. You are a carer. How, do, how does it work? Well, it's lovely to be here, Matt, to start with. The thing is, you don't do it all at the same time. I'm in my 60s. So I've had plenty of time to do these things. You know, you you just mix it up a bit. The thing about being a carer is, and I helped um, my mum care for my dad before that. So I've been a carer on and off for for 15 years now, is that writing is the one job you can do. And you don't have to stop when you're a carer because you do it from home. And so the thing is, you just work around your responsibilities like every parent does, like any carer um, uh, does. Uh, So the thing is, for many carers, they have they have to stop working in order to be able to be a carer. But if you're a writer, we're at home. Granny Rosie is just in the other room from me. And it's quite early we're recording this, but come 12 o'clock, I will hear the squeak of the wheelchair and her little head will come round the door and she'll say, is the sun over the yard arm? And that will be the signal for me to make her a gin and tonic at one minute past 12. So the thing is I can be in here working and Granny Rosie is just next door. So it's, it's much easier for me than it is for most people. And you get up unbelievably early, don't you? Well, that's part of it. I mean, any parent will understand this. You get up when you've got to get up. But I, I've always written best in the very, very early morning. I, you know, if I'm left to my own devices, which normally I'm not, I would go to bed at half past eight and I get up at about half past three. And that suits me very well. So I write and I've quite often, therefore, done four hours of writing before anyone surfaces or any of the normal days starts going you know I can avoid the dishwasher can avoid the bins you know just sit there with my imaginary friends and because I think everybody understands this that you once you've started something you can always pick it up and go back to it it's the starting that's difficult so I've always been an early writer and that moment where you you're almost dreaming I suppose you've been kind of asleep you wake up and you sit at your computer and they're waiting for you those characters are waiting for you you left them there yesterday so you know it's very I'm very lucky to be a full-time writer because that means that I'm not trying to fit it in like I used to in the old days between doing a proper job um, and, and doing my my really very fun job. It's what you described in Desert Island Disc which you recorded recently as a liminal time of day and I think if you're out and about at that time I used to come back from my LBC shows early in the morning a bit later than the three but you notice things that Perhaps you wouldn't if you were up later. You do. And everything is very sharply defined. It's that moment. I love the moment. You know, it it is always the first bird is the blackbird. It it always is the blackbird. And and it's completely dark and there's nobody about and it's very, very quiet. I live in Chichester in Sussex and we live in a very quiet part of that. So there's no traffic or noise or people going anywhere. And then you just start to see the shape come back to the world as the light starts to come up again. And it's it's just so wonderful being the one person awake in a sleeping house or a sleeping street. And I think you it's hard to find any kind of peace and quiet in this modern world. Everything's always bleeping and squeaking and we're all permanently available because of mobile phones and all of this kind of thing. And that silence of the pre-dawn and the dawn, it's just what you need as a, as a writer. But it's also, I think, what we all need as humans, just that moment of oh, decompression before you start, you know, start the daily grind again. When I went through the cocktail of the things that you busy yourself with, I omitted being a grandmother. What's that like? <laughs> oh, it's so great. It's, at, you know, when uh, this is an awful thing to admit, but I, uh, you know, God, let's be honest. When women would say to me, oh, you you no idea, my grandchild, it's like nothing. I honestly, I'm afraid, would think you need probably to get a job. Um, you know, everybody talking all the time about how great it was going to be as a grandparent. And then it happened to me and it 
it's all true. It's just the joy. It's not the cliche of you can give them back or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It's more that you're older, you've done it, uh, you can take the joy in them. And also when you're being a grandparent, you're doing it 100%. Whereas for every working parent I know, whether they're male or female or anybody, um, you're always trying to do everything. You're juggling many children, you're juggling jobs, you're possibly sorting out mortgages, even parents as well. Whereas when you're being a granny, you're just focused. So I looked after my grandson for a few days quite recently and I wasn't trying to do anything else. And it was utterly joyous. Mind you, when he went home, I pulled myself a glass of wine, Sunday evening, sat at the kitchen table, fell asleep at the table, head on the table, because I'm not as young as I was. <laughs> it, it did me in. <laughs> I just want to return to the theme of caring. Would you agree with me that carers are hugely undervalued in our society, in our country? Yes, absolutely. It's an extraordinary thing. When I did record my Desert Island Discs, and I did talk a lot about caring in that, the producers, uh, who were wonderful, said that they had never had somebody in the history of the programme that they could remember who had talked about being a carer. And that is extraordinary because women in the UK, by the age of 59, have a 50-50 chance of being an unpaid carer. So we're talking about unpaid care, the care that you give because you love someone or because out of duty or because there's no one else to do it. And it's, you know, there are 13 million of us unpaid carers in the UK, and that number goes up and down, but it, it went up obviously during the COVID pandemic, it hasn't significantly come down. And it's the lowest paid of any of the statutory benefits if people need to claim that. Many people have to give up their jobs in order to be carers. And because it hits at the moment, it often does for women. I was, I was younger, I was in my 40s when I started to be partly a carer. But for many women, it comes at the moment that they have children as well, and possibly also going through menopause. You know, they're having a lot of changes in, in life. So a lot of carers have quite a difficult time balancing everything looking after their own mental health. And there are wonderful organisations like Carers UK who do the best they can. But the Dilnock Commission was commissioned to look into unpaid care and social care in 2010, reported in 2011. And successive governments have just kicked the can down the road. But everybody agrees that unless this nettle is grasped, everything will fall to pieces because actually without unpaid care, nothing will work and the NHS won't be able to cope. It's approaching its 75th birthday. It's being deliberately staffed of funds. We can all see that. But all of the care that is being given unpaid, if that isn't there, then those people are going to be within the NHS and, and the NHS can't cope. There are also nearly a million child carers in this country, uh, children between five and 17 who have a responsibility for caring, usually for a parent, but occasionally for a sibling. And those young people miss out on schooling, they go to school, they don't know what they're going to find when they come back. Um, and it's incredibly challenging. And when I've been doing talks about, I wrote a book about this called An Extra Pair of Hands. When I've been giving talks on this, always there will be a young person in their 20s who will come up and tell me their story of what it was like to be a child carer and how they are kind of separated from all of their friends because their friends are going out to play and they are rushing home to possibly even feed somebody. You know, so there has got to be, this has got to be a priority for the next government. And people have got to see that it's everybody's business to make caring visible and valued. And carers, I imagine, cut right across society. I mean, you, you, walk, down, you walk down the street and whoever you might be looking at yeah. might, might be a carer. As far as children are concerned, I, I wasn't aware of that. And that's really shocking. And of course, no child has the responsibility to look after a parent. But you're saying they find themselves in that position. Well, yes, because who's going to do it? That's the thing that... There has, you know, the Dilnock Commission gave some really clear recommendations and they should just have been implemented. It was an all party commission. It wasn't uh, party political in any way whatsoever. But what happens is that certain governments make promises when they're trying to be elected and then they just don't do anything about it. Uh, the only thing that has changed significantly is that the carers allowance has gone up slightly, which is good. And now carers can get, wait for this, five days off a year unpaid as a carer. It's, it, it's it, absurd. It, it's shocking. It's, just, it's shocking, you know. So the thing is, we are everywhere. Carers are everywhere. And, you know, the older you get, the more likely you are to be talking to someone. And you will discover that people are spending every weekend driving halfway across the country to visit a, a father or a mother or, or, so, or, you know, some other re relative or sometimes a friend, of course. So it's absolutely part of the fabric of society that needs to be addressed. And it's very, very important that we do because the sign 
of a good society, I think, is how we look after the people who need it most, not the people who need it least. You know, it's, you know, we are in an age of self-interest, it appears, in government rather than public service, which is what we need and what leaders should be doing. So all of us who are carers, we have very different experiences. I'm incredibly lucky in almost every single way about this. It doesn't mean that there aren't emotional challenges or losses or griefs or things. Of course, there are. But on a day-to-day level, I can carry on with my writing in a way that many people, many women that I know have had to stop working in order to be able to fulfill their responsibilities. And they, and they do it willingly, but there needs to be more support. I want to take you back to the very start, Kate, because you nearly weren't with us, were you? I mean, you were very premature. I was very premature, which in 1961 was, you know, much more of a touch and go. I I never quite knew what it meant because my granny would always say I was small enough to fit inside a quart jug. And of course, this was always repeated. But I realised when I was about 25, I had no idea how big a quart jug was. So it meant actually nothing. Yeah, I was I was very lucky because uh, my ma had had not great um, experiences with pregnancy and things had gone wrong several times. And with me, therefore, she was being monitored all the time. But that meant leaving where she lived in Cheam to go to University College Hospital in London every week, which, of course, is a bit bonkers if you're supposed to be resting up. And things started to go wrong when she was seven months pregnant with me. But they started to go wrong when she was in the hospital. And if she hadn't been there, that would have been the end of that. What was very... Uh, emotional for me was all of those years later, 61 years later, my grandson was born in that hospital. And that felt a lovely kind of closing of a circle, the same circle. It's interesting hearing you talk about this because miscarriage, I think, probably still has, and it shouldn't, but has something of a taboo around it, do you think? And and I wonder whether it would help if it was talked about a bit more. And, And if there were, I mean, you want women to be supported, don't you? Yes, I think there was always very much an idea, certainly when I was pregnant and certainly when my mother was pregnant, that you just bore the loss yourself and got on with it. You didn't talk about it. And of course, there are reasons for that historically, in that given women's health by and large has improved in Britain over the generations. But at the turn of the last set of centuries, so the 19th to the 20th, half of all children died before their fifth birthday. And women would be pregnant often every year, and many of those pregnancies would not be seen to term. So there was a sense that if you grieved for every loss, that you would simply just not be able to carry on. It would just be too overwhelming. But in with modern medicine in, in the UK and much better um, prenatal care for, for most groups of women, the idea that there is no loss, you just pretend it didn't happen, I think is very old fashioned now. I think some people do want to be private about those things, but I think it's. I think more people are speaking out, and I think it's also really important that that men, if if a woman is in a partnership with a man, that men are allowed to grieve a miscarriage as well. It's a loss for for both partners, whether they're male or female, or you know, or same sex couples, whatever it is. And so I think it's just it's not that you dwell on these things, but it's more that you have closure and then you move on. And I think that is starting to change, actually. I think a lot of people are starting to speak out about their losses. And that makes it, of course, you know, easier for, for other people who are going through the same thing and might feel quite isolated about it. How important is it for you, Kate, to make women the stars of your novels? Oh, it's very important. Because for, for me, I'm passionate about history. Um, I'm curious about history. I genuinely believe that by shining a spotlight on the past, we know who we are now. But I also believe that we have to tell the whole story. And so much of history has been written only about male experience or has only been written by men until relatively recently in terms of the discipline of history as a a subject, if you like. And therefore, there's a great deal of silence about half of human experience and particularly what one might call ordinary women, people like me, that when you do have women in history, they're all queens. And the numbers of people who were queens is minute compared to the rest of us who were just getting on with, you know, baking the bread and binding the books and opening the gates and ringing the bells and whatever else we were doing. So it's not that I ever make a a decision in quite that way, but I suppose my passion is unheard and underheard women's stories. And I'm a woman. And so when I, and I love adventure writing. And when I was growing up and my dad used to read me adventure stories, I loved them, but I was always very conscious that it was never a girl. 
And I think that's sort of embedded in. And I thought, well, I'm going to just write some stories with girls at the heart of them or women at the heart of them. I have lots of gorgeous men in my books uh, as well. But it's just, if you like, shifting where the spotlight shines. And it's very interesting. I do a lot of interviewing as well. And my male friends who are writers say that they are never asked why they write about men. It's just assumed that that's natural. Whereas it is quite interesting that often, partly because I write adventure, people do want to say, why do you write about women? And it kind of says, well, I'm a woman. Why wouldn't I? You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. But it's great. It, you know, there are so many brilliant stories to be told. And, you know, history is all of us. You know, men and women built the world together. I asked the question and, and phrased it as how important is it to you? Not, not why, but how important is it to you? Partly, at least, because in the ghost ship, you're taking us back in time. So you are taking us back to a time where, when we study history, we don't learn nearly enough about the everyday lives of women or the extraordinary feats of women who, as you say, were not queens or perhaps Florence Nightingale. You know, we do learn about her, but we don't know enough, do we, about how women lived their lives, how they might have thought, what their preoccupations were. Exactly. And the thing is that that is it is about the nature of the recording of history, who gets to write it, who gets to decide what matters and what doesn't. The fact that history, it's a cliche to say it's written with an agenda, but it is true for all that. But it's also often written uh, with a purpose, um, not just by the victors. Uh, so quite often people cite history today in order to justify the prejudice or bigotry in a society that's that's current. They say, well, tradition says it's never true. You know, uh, it's never true. And so the thing is that there's also very little common sense often in history, because there is this idea that women in the past all sat around doing embroidery all the time and very little else. And the men were out doing stuff. But the period of time I'm writing about in the Gilbert Family Chronicles and the ghost ship is number three of four, though, it, as you said, it's a standalone, it's a pirate novel, is that the men have been at war in the lowlands, so the Netherlands, what will become you know, Holland and Belgium, in England that will become Britain, in Spain, in Italy, in the Holy Roman Empire, which will become Germany, in France. They have been at war for two generations. The men aren't there. So the minute you kind of think of that, you realise that who do we think were opening the city gates in the morning? And who do we think were running the markets and opening the shops and baking the bread and, and hoeing the ground? Well, it obviously was women because there were no men they were they were on the battlefield so for me it's about the common sense of it of course we were all there doing things together but then when history gets written up and because it was almost always written by men because it came out of universities and religious institutions where women were banned and a very narrow band of men not all men at all but a very narrow band of men they tended to write about what they they valued and saw and that wasn't women which is why it's so important that women write and can read and why the battles over access to girls and women's education and women writing. Women writing is always transgressive because if women don't write their own stories, you're reliant on somebody else writing them up and they will either write them up in a way that suits them or won't write them up at all. And so, you know, I did a one woman show earlier this year uh, based on one of my nonfiction books, Warrior Queens and Quiet Revolutionaries. It was a big theatre show. And it just put on stage. Um, there's a thousand women in the book, but it put on stage about 25 of them. And every night somebody would come up and say, I've never heard of this person. How did I not know that the first person who discovered what we now call global warming was a woman? Or how did I not know the most prolific British striker of all time was a woman? You go Well, the point is we can put these women back. We don't have to despair. The information is that we just have to go and find it and then share their names. And then we have a full bit of history because half the story is not history at all. Another example is now that women's cricket is getting much more coverage and the girls are now growing up to think that they might be able to play cricket for England, we learn that there have been women playing cricket for England for decades and decades. Yes. Achieving yes. incredible things. And, and and then now is an opportunity, as you say, to write those people back in. That's right. It's just about saying, you know, I say this every night in my show. It's not about taking the gorgeous, brilliant, wonderful men out. It's about putting the women in next to them where they belong. And that's really important, that it's not an either or. It's just let's tell, you know, my lovely dad, who was very old fashioned to a man in, in some respects. Uh, but he said, 
oh, I understand, darling. He said, what you, what you mean is it's about getting a bigger table and more chairs. Absolutely. That's it. Bigger table, more chairs. Before we come back to the ghost ship, you mentioned that you're you're doing a show and you, you are on tour, aren't you? And I want you to tell us a little bit of, about that. And it's quite exciting, isn't it? To Not just to be on stage. And I do a lot of on stage stuff interviewing people, but you are the sort of star of this. To actually do a tour is quite thrilling, isn't it? It was amazing. I did it in the spring, March and April, and I'm going back out on tour next March and April. And it was, I suppose it was the old thing, really, Matt. It's a challenge. I'm in my 60s. I was asked if I'd like to do this, and I thought, I wonder if I can. You know, I'm like you. I do a lot of interviewing. I go on stages and interview other people on stages and sit on a stage and talk about my books. But this was a proper show, you know, with an hour before the interval, an interval with wine and Maltesers, not for me, obviously, you know, but the audience. Then another hour afterwards, it had sound, it had music, it had props, it had haze machines, it had a banging sound crack, you know, for people coming to get their seats. And so I was a performer, not a writer. And I didn't know if I could do it. You know, I like a chat, but it's a different thing, uh, being a performer. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And if I discover either that I don't enjoy it or I'm not very good at it, then there's nothing lost for having tried something different. Of course, it turned out that I loved performing, really loved it. I loved the audience. I loved that moment when the lights went down and the music started and you get that slight flutter. I even loved the bits. I mean, it's very hard doing a one-woman show, you know, when you're talking for two hours because there's nowhere to hide. And at one lovely venue, at a different theatre every night, travelled all over the country. They'd put ice in my water on stage, which I didn't realise. I took a great swig and choked on an ice cube and just, you know, had to stand in the middle of the stage coughing, really. Um, and there's no, there's nothing anybody could do there. There's no, no other actor that could come in and sort you out and, you know, all of these kind of things. And it was really exhilarating, incredibly nerve-wracking to start with. I haven't been nervous like that for years and years. But I loved it. And what I loved most, actually, was the afterwards, when women and men would come up, but particularly women and daughters, would come up afterwards and tell me their story or tell me about a woman they really admired. And that it, it was fantastic, actually. It was really fantastic. I was, I was shattered by the end of it. You've just come off stage in the last day or two from the Chalk Valley History Festival. Yes. And I wonder whether you agree with me that literary festivals are kind of... And I've become much more aware of them in recent years, no doubt, because I've been hosting a lot of events myself. But they feel to me like a really dynamic, exciting part of our literary life. In a way, they're part of the bloodstream of our cultural life in this country, aren't they? They are. It's a very, very British thing. I mean, other countries do all have expos and they do have some festivals, but there is no one, nowhere like the UK that has so many literary festivals. The idea that authors and readers should be in the same space. And if you like, I mean, it's a much overused word, but the idea that writers should be accessible. That, um, and I, I love meeting readers. You know, the Chalk Valley was kicking off what's a 40 date gig for the publication tour of Ghost Ship. And some of them are in little bookshops, um, wonderful independent bookshops, and others are in big spaces. But this, the point is the same, that when you write a book, you put it out there. And the reader finishes it. It's the reader taking the book and reading it and bringing themselves to the book that kind of brings it to life. And when I published a book during lockdown, it's the second one of this series, uh, City of Tears, and I didn't do any publicity at all. I really missed it. The book never quite felt real to me in the same kind of way. So we are very, very lucky in this country that all over the country uh, there are literary festivals and people can go along and talk. Chalk Valley is amazing because it's a history festival. You know, I, I found myself looking out on, you know, I, I think 350 people, tent was full. Uh, we sold every single book, which was fantastic. Just what you want at the beginning of publication week to sell every single book. <laughs> They're also part of a sort of decentralization, aren't they? Because so much of cultural life happens in London. So this is obviously there are great swathes of culture in other cities too. But this kind of brings authors face to face with their readers right around the country in, in small little pockets, villages sometimes even. And it's a, it's kind of a democratising experience in a way. It, that's a, a brilliant way of putting it. It's, it's exactly that, because readers are everywhere and writers are everywhere. Most of us don't live in London. 
I mean, lots of do, of course, and we have a wonderful capital city, and that's really important. I, you know, I, I don't agree with all the bashing of London. You know, you know, a capital city is a capital city. It's supposed to be the jewel in the crown, but it's not the only place that matters. And reading is the art form that more people engage with than anything else by a country mile. It is something that everybody can do, hopefully, if they have access to books or libraries, very important libraries. And it, you just meet such different types of people when you go to literary festivals, different ages, different ex expectations. And, you know, all of us do things in libraries. We do things for books. And funnily enough, although the South Bank Centre in London is absolutely terrific for book events, funnily enough, the one place that book events are trickier is London because there's so much on offer that actually it kind of almost drowns itself out. Whereas you go to, yes, you know, sitting in a field in the middle of Wiltshire yesterday, thousands of people everywhere joining in and it was it was fantastic and just to be clear this tour that you're on at the moment isn't the same thing as the tour you've done in the spring and that you're doing next year this is this is no, this specifically... is just a normal book publication tour so it's me going round all over the shop talking for 45 minutes taking 15 yes. minutes of questions signing a load of books and then moving on so that's it's this is just a normal publication tour whereas the theater tour was a one-woman show it was it was performance Tell us about Louise then, who's at the heart of the ghost ship. How did you imagine her? How did you come up with her? What is she telling us without giving too much away? Yeah, that's the problem with adventure fiction. That, you know, there's so many secrets, rebellion, murder, body count, disguise. It's quite hard to talk about fiction sometimes because you, you so much of it is a spoiler. But Louise is the granddaughter of the character that anybody who's read the first two books will know. Minou Joubert is the, is the main protagonist and her husband Pete in The Burning Chambers, we meet them and it's a Romeo and Juliet story. She is a Catholic girl and he is a Protestant boy, a Huguenot in French terms and they fall in love and it is the story of a feud between two families, 300 years of history of Huguenot diaspora in history. But the reason that the ghost ship is can be read as a standalone and quite a lot of people haven't read the earlier two but are reading this is because I have jumped two generations on to Louise. We meet her at the end of the City of Tears as a seven-year-old child, just physically there. And I didn't, I never decide, Matt, it's not how I do it. I kind of, I know the sort of novel I want to write. So I knew absolutely I was going to write a pirate novel. I've always wanted to write a pirate novel ever since I had the Ladybird Book of Pirates in 1966. Um, and it had two, only two female pirates in it, Bonnie and Reed. And I've always been fascinated by their story. And it, this, the ghost ship is inspired by their story. It's not a telling of it at all. They're a different generation and different century and different story. But the idea that, that women and girls might disguise themselves as boys to go to sea made total sense to me because the boys seem to be having much more fun you know, the girls were, you know, sitting at home and the boys were out on deck, you know, doing all of this kind of thing. So Louise, you know, I have a sense it was going to be a pirate novel. I knew that it was going to be moving the story of the religious wars in France forward. Where, where were we now? Uh, we were with the great French king. All of my historical adventure fiction happens at a turning point in history. So what I mean by that is a moment at which if things had gone the other way, all of history that followed would have been different. So if the great French king, Henri IV, Henry IV, had not been assassinated in 1610 in Paris, there probably wouldn't have been a French Revolution because he would have built France into a tolerant society. As it was, it went back to victimizing of the Huguenots, expulsion of the Huguenots. France became a very secondary state. It bankrupted itself. It essentially threw out what we would now call its middle class, and everywhere the Huguenots went, they enriched the society. Little Holland, because they took in all the Huguenots, became a world superpower. So there are many lessons, shall we say, about displacement and how you view people and their skills. But So I knew all of these things, but I didn't know who was going to be my main person. But I kind of plan all of this, do all the research, then I sit down and I start writing. And so I thought, oh, interesting, Louise. It's Louise grown up here. So who is Louise? Let me keep writing, see if I can find out who Louise is. And then as I keep writing, I think, oh, I see. So you're very much your father and mother's child. And that generation is kind of missing in this story. Uh, you are passionate about home, but you're quite independent. You're not prepared to accept the limitations on you. 
Ah, but you're rich. And why are you rich? So for me, the first graph is about discovery. I don't sit down with an idea at all in mind. I sit down with, let's see where this goes. And I wasn't expecting it to be a love story. I didn't expect that to happen. But then suddenly, oh, hello. Oh, this is going to be fun to write. And of course, that must be subconsciously from the Bonnie and Reed story. So my first draft is all emotion. And then when I've got a first draft, and when I'm doing a first draft, I write every day, Christmas or raining, as my ma used to say, um, seven or eight hours a day until I've got something. And then I kind of look at it and I go, okay, what is this book? And then I do a second draft, which is all kind of structure, saying, well, that doesn't work. This doesn't work. Cut this out. This makes no sense. This is boring. And then a third draft, I essentially write the book as it should have been written in the first place, because now I know the story. So three drafts always. Historical fiction is the sort of synthesis of history and imagination. I mean, to be a good historian, you probably require an imagination anyway, because there are facts. But as we know from trying to make sense of contemporary life, it's incredibly difficult and incredibly complicated. So you probably as a historian, I imagine, have to use your imagination to take yourself back in time. Have you kind of used a little bit more imagination? Because I wonder whether Louise would have been plausible in the 1600s. Have you allowed yourself a bit of license with her? No, not really. Not not in that sense, no. We tend to assume that women's power and place in the world improves with each generation. But that's not true. I mean, sadly, we can see that. You know, we can see that when we look at Iran. We can see that when we look at Afghanistan, where we are on day 652 of girls being forbidden to go to school after the age of nine. So... With this period of history, one of the things that was a consequence of the Reformation and the wars of religion was that there was a certain liberty for women within the Protestant faith. Women were allowed to write and publish. They were allowed sometimes, not in Scotland, because John Knox was the biggest misogynist on the planet, um, but were allowed to speak. And women, you know, it's often been about class and money, not about whether you're a woman. And so Louise, as a wealthy woman, would have had quite a lot of power because it's the money that matters. And the thing about the Protestants in France, the Huguenots, the the phrase middle class didn't exist there. But essentially, they were the first quite obviously visible middle class. And they were it was about trade and business and pragmatism. And so if someone was effective in business, There will be men who will go, or uh, the woman shouldn't be in charge or whatever. But if she is doing better than the other people, they'll go and buy the stuff from her. And that was one of the reasons it's very interesting when you look at the history of Holland, which obviously is part of this story, is that there were no wholesale massacres um, of Catholics and Protestants in Holland, even when the Catholic ruling class of Amsterdam stepped down after 40 years in charge in what was called the alteration back in 1578. Not a single person was killed. And I asked all my Dutch historian friends why that was. And they said they would not interfere with trade. So Louise is, she's not, she is exceptional, but she is absolutely a woman who could have lived. There were many women, you know, wealthy Protestant women who had a great deal of power. And doing what she did on the high seas. Ah, no. Now, you're absolutely right there. Is any of that plausible? It was considered very bad luck to have women on ships. You know, it was a curse to have women on ships. It is absolutely plausible that she would have, as an owner of a ship, been on board and go backwards and forwards. But what I discovered when I was uh, writing Warrior Queens was that Bonnie and Reed, who were the most notorious female pirates, and they're the 18th century pirates, were not the only ones. So were there thousands of female pirate commanders, she captains, as they're known? No. But were there quite a few? There were. And so I worked on that. So there was Jeanne de Clisson a little bit earlier called the Lioness of Brittany, who actually for a, for a period of time completely terrorised the channel between England and France. And she painted her ships black and had red sails and she ran down every single ship belonging to the French and slaughtered everybody on board. Uh, there was the great Irish pirate queen called Grania O'Mala, known as Grace O'Malley often, And she was a contemporary of Elizabeth I and even sailed to meet Elizabeth I to bargain for uh, people to be released. There was the great Moroccan pirate queen at the same kind of period, Saida al-Hurra, who operated out of Saleh, 
um, in North Morocco, which is where a lot of uh, the ghost ship is set in the Atlantic around the Canary Islands. And that was very much uh, the heart of the slave trade and the piracy trade. And then a little bit later in the 19th century, the most successful female pirate of all time was called Changxi. And she at one stage had 40,000 pirates under her control. So the thing is, what is is there a bit of license? Of course there is. But is it plausible? Also, yes. That's the key with historical fiction. You can... You know, you, you can't do something that's completely absurd. Of course you can't, because then you're distorting history. But can you use some of the examples and create a composite like Louise Hubert? Absolutely. How do you imagine yourself into Louise? In How do you decide how she might have twiddled her thumbs or, or clutched her clothes or thought? How do you get inside the mentality of someone from the, the 17th century? Do, do, does that involve a lot of reading, a lot of history. How do you make sure that the way that she is coming across is as close as it can be to how a woman in her time would have thought and behaved rather than a woman in our time? Absolutely. That is the key question, is that you cannot put 21st century views and ideas into a 17th century character. It just makes no sense. It's absolutely about the research. It's about years and years and years of reading every single piece of history. But more importantly, reading, if you can get your hands on them, letters and diaries. And by this stage, there's a lot of writing by women that is available to read, uh, you know, so that you can get a sense of what mattered. One of the things that's really gives you a great deal of insight into what people valued is looking at wills, because when you see what uh, a woman wills to her favourite children or her least favourite children or her family, you start to get a sense that oh God, that pair of shoes mattered a great deal, a bag of salt, uh, you know, a, a book. So it's about doing, being like a magpie. You know, you're kind of like a detective when you're researching history, is you just don't know what is going to be the thing that unlocks the character for you. For me, I'm always on the outside. I'm never inside that character. I'm very much, you know, the uh, third but the narrator looking down over it so I'm watching Louise as she goes about her business on the page learning who she is and it means that sometimes I go down full you know to start with I thought she was much I wasn't sure how good she was you know what was she half a baddie and half a goodie like her mum kind of is or was she somebody different and as I wrote her I thought oh I see yes that happened I started to realise that something had happened to her when she was a child that had made her quite reserved. So it's a discovery. It's like getting to know a new friend. You know, you meet someone, you think, I really like you. And then you talk to them and then you learn things about them and then they're not quite the person you thought they were. It's exactly the same for me when I'm writing a character. And so I don't ever think of myself as being in their shoes any more than I think of myself. You know, I write murderous priests. I write violent assassins I write gentle old women you know I'm none of the characters but I am observing them from the outside did having a successful career in publishing help you find your feet as an author it of course made a difference to being published in the first place uh, because I was propelled into writing by a man who is still my agent after 30 odd years when I was sitting I was expecting my second child and I was moaning about the fact that the book I'd wanted to read when I was pregnant the first time around wasn't there. And now I was pregnant again and it still wasn't there. And he essentially challenged me, said, well, why don't you stop moaning and write it? And I'm not a moaner, really. I am a doer. And I thought, OK, I will. He says that it was several weeks. It's a much better story the way I tell it, which is the next day he rang up and said, I've got a contract for you with Virago to write this book. You know, my story is better than his. He, he's trying to be honest here. Um, so I was kind of propelled into writing. And of course, that came about because I was part of publishing. There have been many, many advantages. When I talk to you about how I write and plot and characterization, it's slightly disingenuous in that for 10 years, I was trained as an editor. So many of those lessons I've absorbed so deeply that they feel like their instinct, but actually they were things taught in the first place. It's just that they're so deeply absorbed in now. I don't think of them as being taught things at all. It's very wonderful when things go brilliantly because you know it's luck. It's luck if the music stops and the spotlight's on your book. Uh, you know, with my 2005 novel Labyrinth, which became a, a very big global bestseller, which was not what I expected. 
I knew that that was an amazing piece of luck. It wasn't because it was the most extraordinary book that was ever published or I'd been particularly brilliant. And it would have been the same book if it had sold 2,000 copies. Obviously, it was a delight. So that was helpful then when it came to carry on writing because I did, I wasn't sitting there thinking, oh my God, oh my God, can I ever repeat this? Because I knew that it wasn't the writing that had made that happen. It was everything that had made it happen. And it's out of your control. So the only thing in your control is to write the best book you can at the time as the writer you are. And again, hope, hope for luck, hope for a fair win. And I've been very lucky since then. Sometimes it's also really depressing because you do know about publishing. So when people say, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're taking X number of copies for WH Smith, and you know that that's probably a, a little bit less than they were hoping. You know, so it, it, it can be a double-edged sword, but you know, it, it certainly helped me get published in the first place. Labyrinth is set in the Languedoc in France. Beyond presumably giving you the inspiration for that book or part of the inspiration for it, how did living in France for a while impact you? Do you think it made you a better writer? It um, it made me a writer, actually. That's the truth, that we first went to Carcassonne in 1989, and we're only there by coincidence in that my wonderful mother-in-law, Granny Rosie, she had retired from teaching and had been given a, a lump sum to thank her for her years of service, which could have bought, you know, a particularly nice dog kennel in Sussex, but in the southwest of France, uh, could buy a little tiny house. And so we pulled our very, very limited resources because my husband had lived in Paris for quite some time and really prefers France to England in many respects. Um, and so we we did this, we bought this tiny house. And the only reason we were there is that Granny Rosie knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone, you know, so never even heard of it when we arrived there for the first time. But it was when I got off the train, because there were no planes in those days, November, 1989, and walked through the Bastide, the modern town, which is 14th century, and saw for the first time the medieval citadel, the old city of Carcassonne on the hill. And it was a coup de foudre. I just fell completely in love and thought, oh, oh, I belong here. And I'd written two fiction, two nonfiction before that, but I would say I was someone, I'd written books. I wasn't a writer. I hadn't found my writing voice. And there, I started to hear for the first time what I always describe as the whispering in the landscape. The fact that you're you're there in a place and there's this conjunction of history and mystery and the past and atmosphere. And then you start to hear almost like a story, like, ah, oh, there's a story I could tell here. And I didn't intend to write about Carcassonne and it was years before I did, but I fell in love with the history of the region with a group of heretical Christians called Cathars who had lived and died there in the 11th, 12th, 13th and 14th centuries. And out of that, years later came Labyrinth. And all of my historical fiction, Carcassonne and the Languedoc plays a part because it's fundamental in how I, I had to go away from Sussex in order to learn how to be a writer of landscape. And once I'd done that with my adopted home, I could bring my writing back to England as well. Do you now hear the whispering of landscape wherever you are? Or are there some places? No, that... no it's, it's absolutely about writing. So there are loads of places that I adore uh, or love to visit. You know, I really, I really love Edinburgh, for example. I really love New York. No whispering in the landscape there. But, you know, the, one of the key places in uh, the ghost ship is the Canary Islands. I love the Canary Islands. I know it's terribly unfashionable to love the Canary Islands, but I do. And I've always felt that at some moment there would be a story that I would find there. And with the ghost ship, discovering the Canary Islands were at the heart of the wine trade and at the heart of all international trade. Every ship that was going to the New World or down the Portuguese Gold Coast, so-called, or down to the, the Cape, uh, went via either Madeira or Las Palmas de Gran Canaria or Tenerife. And so I thought, finally, after all these years, here is my Canary Island story. Just briefly explain to us how the Women's Prize for Fiction came about and the impact that you feel that it has had on women in literature, because women have been at the heart of literature, haven't they? But they haven't always been remotely sufficiently recognised. That's exactly the point of the prize. It wasn't that women weren't being published. It was that women's work wasn't being celebrated and honoured in the way that their male friends and counterparts' work was. So 
you know, there was a Booker Prize shortlist in 1991 that had no women on it at all. Now, that is all right in that the judges have the right to choose the six books that they most value according to the terms and conditions they've been given. The point was nobody noticed that it was all men. And a, a group of us, men and women, from publishing, agenting, book selling, libraries, journalism, all got together and said, can you imagine if they put out a list of all women, everybody would have behaved as if that was political. Because often just to see the reality of something, you just flip it on its head. And so we thought, well, what can we do? And we thought, well, it's the same as with everything. You can sit around and moan. Or you could do something. And what we decided to do was to set up a prize that every year would guarantee that 20 originally, it's now 16 in a long list, six in a short list and one winner. Books by women written in English from anywhere in the world would get their moment in the sun. And that it would be about trying to change the narrative around that, which is that men write novels for everybody. And there is such a thing as a neutral voice. You know, that is literature with a capital L. But when women write books, particularly if they have women lead characters, they're just for women or only for women. Whereas, of course, men want to read books by women and women read a lot of books by men. But they often the selling of books suggests to men that the books are not for them. And so we just thought we could we could make a difference. And it was very tough setting it up. And I still wake up thinking, thank God there was no social media, because I'm not sure how I would have coped with the level of abuse that would have come, because I know that that is what happens now. But in those days, people would have to ring up my home number, speak to my husband and be put on in order to be abusive. And so that was obviously put people off uh, from doing that, but still got a lot of a lot of flack. But as time went on, people started to realise that there were some incredible novels and they hadn't seen them. They hadn't been reviewed. They weren't on any lists. And it's not about um, new writing. It is simply about saying, if a prize is to have value, it must have integrity. And it must just be saying, in the opinion of this group of judges, these are the most extraordinary books by women written in this year. Give them a go. And it has transformed. You know, we can't make big claims because we don't know. Uh, you can never know quite what makes the difference or not. But what we can say is that before the Women's Prize for Fiction, only 9% books shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. And now it's about 38, 39% of books. Um, given it's still about 60% of novels published are by women, it's still, you know, there's still a disparity, but that's okay. And all prizes simply celebrate the best and they keep works of quality on the shelf. That's a very important part of why prizes matter because it's a very uh, disposable industry at the moment where everything's about the new debut the new, new exciting thing. And books sometimes are on and off the shelves in six weeks. So how do we protect great works for the um, boys, girls, everybody, men, women, everybody of the future to find? Well, prizes help do that. And because there's lots of prizes, there's lots of choices. Could there always be a women's prize for literature? Uh, yes, I think so at this moment, um, because it's very funny. The people who didn't think we should do it in the first place now tell me we shouldn't do it because it's done its job. I said, so, OK, let's just be clear. Didn't think we should do it. And it's been really, really successful. And now it's really successful. One of the prizes that sells more books than any other prize, you think it should stop. So you want to stop something successful. So um, the thing is that things go backwards as well as forwards. We see that on the news every single day. Celebrating the best is always going to matter. Every prize has eligibility criteria. It might be age, it might be gender, it might be country of residence or birth, it might be genre. Every single literary prize has some kind of terms or conditions attached. And it's just, it's an interesting thing. You know, people often say, do we need the Women's Prize? I say, well, do we need the Booker Prize? Do we need the Pulitzer Prize? Prizes are part of the publishing ecosystem. And if they work, we need them because they keep books in the public eye. It's good for readers. Readers can have the choice. Has sharing a name phonetically with a supermodel influenced your life, Kate? Sadly, much less than I would have hoped. Um, I always expect at some moment people to say, I know, wouldn't it be great if we did a joint photo shoot with both of you? And I, I'm, I'm still waiting for that call. Um, I have on one occasion uh, with my American agent, who hilariously is called George Lucas. So you can see where the mistake came that we were going to a very swanky restaurant in New York. 
and I was over there on a publication trip and it was one of those restaurants that had appeared in Sex and the City so nobody could get a tape you know it's that kind of thing and obviously somebody in the kitchen saw in the book George Lucas and Kate Moss and made a, a not unreasonable assumption that those two together so when we arrived at this restaurant there were just so many photographers outside and of course we just being the English people were went oh I wonder who's in and you know went in and didn't notice anybody kind of freezing when this happened um, and then was shown to an incredibly gorgeous but very visible table you know quite in the window with you know glass everywhere and we sat down and we just ordered and then noticed somebody go outside and one by one all the photographers vanish and later we realized what had happened <laughs> and it's like well okay it happened once happened again um yeah in the early days before my books had really taken off I would sometimes get interviewed and people would say, so is she prepared to talk about anything? And my publicist would say, well, you know, with, within reason, that's relevant. And then, and then the killer would be things like, is she prepared to talk about fur? It's like, what? Fur? And then we go, ah, yeah, wrong one. But, you know, I could, you know, I admire her enormously. I think she's done incredible things. I could share a name with somebody who'd done not great things. So I'm very happy to be the other Kate Moss. Just want to finish by asking you about the the story of how you got together with your husband because you said earlier that you started going out when you were fifteen and I think that lasted a couple of years and then you didn't see each other for eight years and met no. on a train literally yeah. met on a train literally decided did. that it had been right the first time round <laughs> yeah and... that's right you couldn't make it up could you really <laughs> it's yeah it's a shame I don't write modern fiction yeah no that is it's, it's exactly I mean it is ludicrous but it is exactly what happened so you know we. I was at the big girls comprehensive school and he was at the boys comprehensive school and they were on adjacent sites and there was a big hedge down the middle, which four teachers had to patrol at lunchtime to make sure there was no, you know, argy-bargy going on. And there was a joint school production of Offenbach's La Vie Prisienne and I was in the orchestra and he was one of the um, singers on the stage. And so we did, we went out and then he was a year above me, went off to university and it fizzled out like those things do. And didn't have any contact. You know, it wasn't days of mobile phones and emails so that you could easily keep in touch. You know, you just left. And then I was coming down to be with my uh, middle sister who was having a baby and I was going to be with her. And she rang me up on a Saturday morning. And so I just leapt on the train. I actually got there too late. She was very efficient, my sister. So you know, I missed, I missed that bit. And at Gatwick Airport, a person got on and sat opposite me on the train. And it was my husband, Greg, who was in England for the first time in three years and had just got in that carriage. And that was kind of it. And and we just thought, oh, yes, okay, we were right in the first place. So it's partly why we've been able to be carers of help with each other's parents, because, of course, we all knew each other, well, for all of our lives, really, for most of our lives. So, again, that's another piece of luck. <laughs> Kate Moss, thank you so much for asking my answering my twenty questions. That I, I, I cheated and sort of fitted a few more in. But... I, I thought that it felt like more than twenty, but then yeah. you know I do go on a bit, so who knows? So <laughs> some of, some of them were sort of sub questions off off the back of your answers, exactly. Anyway, thank you so much for answering my questions. It's been lovely to talk to you. It's been lovely to talk to you too, Matt.